Hello, my name is Edward Campadumar, and I'm here to discuss with three guests a controversial topic that is especially relevant in light of unfolding events in the Middle East. We're here to question the role of the media in reporting war and violent conflict. What is that role and what could or should it be? Does the media, even unwittingly, actually sell war? And is it right for it to be used to sell anything, even peace? In fact, can peace journalism, as it's known, offer a compelling and realistic alternative to current practice? Or is the very concept of a news journalism that pursues a specific aim beyond informing and truth-telling inherently flawed? With me to discuss this are Associate Professor Jake Lynch, formerly a broadcast journalist with the BBC and Sky News, and currently Director of the Centre for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Sydney. Miriam Francois Serra, an actress until 2003 when she converted to Islam, and who is now a journalist and academic, and journalist, author and broadcaster Peter Hitchens, who is a columnist for The Mail on Sunday. Before we get underway, though, welcome to Things Unseen, CTVC's programme for those of you who think there's more to life than the material world, whether or not you have a faith of your own. If you are intrigued by things that seem beyond human reasoning, the very meaning of life, Things Unseen is for you. So, to the role of the media in reporting violent conflict and the idea of peace journalism. Jake Lynch, you're an academic who now studies peace and conflict, but also a former journalist who reported from a number of war zones. And combining these two hats, the co-author of the definitive work on peace journalism. So, what exactly is it? Peace journalism really originated in a famous essay by Johann Galtung, who is the chief ideas giver of my subject of peace and conflict studies, nearly 50 years ago, called The Structure of Foreign News. Now, this picked up on the familiar insights of the journalist as gatekeeper. The journalist's remit is to report the facts, but of course, the facts is a category of much greater size than the reports. So some basis has to be found for sifting to decide which gets through and which gets left out. And the Gautung Ruger essay, The Structure of Foreign News, was the first to show that that doesn't take place at random. There is a pattern to it. The bits that get left out are usually, maybe even always, the same bits or the same kinds of bits. And the effect of that over time is to distort the picture of conflict, to provide a, a narrative which can serve, as you say, unwittingly, uh, to legitimise violent responses. I'll just mention one, perhaps, of, of the chief conventions, which is frequency. Obviously, if you're a daily newspaper, you're going to be interested in something that's changed since yesterday. So events that have a discernible beginning, middle and end in that time frame are more likely to be reported than processes which have their effect over a, a longer time frame. In the example given in the essay, the soldier who is shot and dies on the battlefield is more newsworthy, therefore, than the development process in the country where the war is taking place, which may, over time, alleviate the causes of the conflict. So peace journalism is a remedial strategy to try to make up for the effects of these conventions and their operation by bringing background issues back into the foreground. And that's very important in some specific circumstances to avoid journalism unwittingly becoming a cheerleader for war. So Peter Hitchens, as a journalist of long and varied experience, does anything that Jake Lynch has said resonate with you? Oh, enormously, yes. There's no doubt that journalism is, to some extent, a branch of the entertainment industry, and that is one of its big problems. The show business aspect of it, Samuel Johnson described the whole thing as scribbling on the backs of advertisements, and what we seek to do a lot of the time is to amuse our readers in an attempt, in some of our cases, to get them to read the other more serious stuff which we believe to be important. 
And the great thing about war from a journalistic point of view is that it is the absolute quintessence of news. That is to say something going wrong in a spectacular way which makes gripping reading or indeed gripping television. And therefore, we're bound to leap on it with a great deal of enthusiasm. It would be amazing if we didn't. The difficulty then comes as to whether in doing so we promote it happening. And I think on some recent occasions, a lot of us certainly have. I've actually seen, not never having wanted to or desired to, but I've actually seen war zones from the inside, having blundered into them largely by accident. And I know perfectly well that it would take a very great deal to justify to me the beginning of any war at all, or to have on my conscience that I might have helped to to begin or encourage one. So I've, I feel that way. But there's no doubt that it is in the nature of our trade to do so. I, I do wish that two things would happen. One, that People would be all over my trade, more cautious about what they do, realizing the effect that it can have and the way in which they can be used by politicians. And the other, that readers should be less willing to be bamboozled by some of the more obvious stuff that's shoved at them. <laughs> so, Miriam Francoise Sarah, as a Westerner who's converted to Islam, have you adopted a new set of eyes in looking at how the UK media reports events? A lot of what's been said really does echo with me the idea that sort of profit and ratings take precedence over truth and ethics in journalism. That's become, I think, even more of a problem with a a celebrity culture which values almost celebrity-like commentators rather than sort of the more seasoned reporters so that people actually prefer to take information from celebrity figures, uh, even in journalism, individuals who are sort of larger than life, who may themselves have a very particular outlook on a particular conflict on a particular region such as the Middle East. If we look at the Iraq war, for example, and post 9-11, a lot of people were sucked into the whole civilizational conflict perspective and people were pushing that angle. A number of particular commentators were pushing that angle and it was through their journalism that they established a narrative uh, which I think became the dominant narrative and then served very much to justify the invasion of Iraq. And what is that dominant narrative, do you think? The civilizational clash, it still is a very dominant narrative. I lived in the US for a couple of years and um, it's possibly more prominent there than it is here. But certainly the idea that there's a a region out there, them uh, versus us, we see that today, I think, more broadly, the idea that there is a, a region in which people have values, ideas, a culture which is so anathema to ours that it can justify violence against them. And in fact, the murder of hundreds, if not thousands of civilians because of this broader paradigm, the framework, the lens, a lens which is used to justify particular action in a region and which is taken on completely uncritically by many very prominent journalists. So Jake, is peace journalism anything more than fair journalism, accurate journalism, or does it have a specific agenda? Well, yes and no. First of all, there's nothing in peace journalism that's incompatible with the journalists' uh, remit of truth-telling. Journalists should report the facts accurately as they find them. I believe they also have a responsibility to consider how it is that I, the journalist, have come to meet these particular facts and how these particular facts have come to meet me because that's often an important part of the story. And if we pay attention to those aspects, we may find the supervention of these patterns of omission over time, which could have an effect that we we didn't begin by intending. The other aspect of it is, though, to go back to something Peter was saying earlier, yes, war is, is a big story because it's evidence of something going wrong, and it's a problem. 
and journalism should draw our attention to problems. But also, at any given point, and, and this is uh, one of the fruits of peace research, in situations of conflict, there are always people working to devise and implement their own small portion of a solution at the same time. And quite often in situations of conflict, not violent conflict, but societies affected by conflict issues, South Africa, for example, the message can all too readily take hold in society that we are beset by these appalling problems, this, these appalling problems of sexual abuse and sexual violence, endemic poverty and deprivation, and nothing can be done about them. And people's expectations that they should be seen as artefacts of a political system and therefore susceptible of change seem to kind of go by the wayside. They seem to be pushed down. Peter? Mass journalism developed in step with universal suffrage democracy. And there is a tendency to blame the press in this without looking further at what seems to me to be the fundamental problem, is how decisions are taken to go to war in universal suffrage democracies. And they seem to me to be taken largely on the basis of propaganda. And if you don't like propaganda, then you have to ask yourself, why is propaganda necessary? Propaganda is necessary to manipulate people who otherwise wouldn't want to do something into doing something they, they would probably prefer not to do if they understood it properly. And that is a feature of universal suffrage democracy. The press play their part in this, and it is often, as I've said, one which is not necessarily creditable. But the real driving force of it is not the press. It lies elsewhere. And I think we need to examine the whole way in which our societies are organized. The, the way in which wars have become, particularly in recent years, almost a, a default position of political leaders who are in trouble or who want to prove that they're really in charge is, is actually quite frightening. What Peter was talking about reminds me of the fact that Judith Miller from the New York Times was leaked a, a story in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq about alleged pipes that could be used for uranium enrichment. Uh, and that story was then reproduced by other outlets. And then, then it was used by the US government as evidence to say, well, look, there are credible sources talking about the fact that these pipes are in existence. And that was used to drum up support, of course. And, and the original leak was from the government itself. So the idea that there is propaganda out there, that the uh, journalists are complicit in that is a real concern. But I also um, agree with Peter here that the blame does lie elsewhere. Where in 2010, The Guardian ran a story about a, a memo which was very clear in the idea that certain audiences needed to be managed in order that they could be brought on board for support in particular conflicts. And I think that's, that's the real concern, is that um, the relationship between the media and the uh, government is a little bit too cosy at times, and not just when it comes to the Middle East. But do you think that's correct? It seems to me that the media constantly challenges the government. You know, there is a deficit of trust. So where is the complicity? Jake? Well, it's in the agenda setting. You know, it's, it's not so much in how we think about things. It's what we think about in the first place. The very strong traditional orientation towards the primacy of official sources is bound to make media unwittingly complicit in a drift to war. There were further clues, interestingly, I think, from the time of Tony Blair when he was UK Prime Minister. He made a, a famous or infamous speech complaining about the scars on his back from attempts to promote public service reform uh, because that entailed negotiating with people like nurses and teachers, whereas it was always said that uh, the Prime Minister admires the professionalism of the armed forces, which meant 
they did as they were told. And as the number of levers in the hands of senior politicians dwindles, that becomes ever more an ever more distinctive edge, that the state has the, the monopoly on the legitimate use of force. It can uh, try to give rise to that power by promoting these narratives and will become more inclined to do so if only in order to give off the impression of being important and being active in shaping the world rather than responding to events. And so therefore, journalism is in even more urgent need, I think, to supplement those official sources with a whole range of others in any episode of conflict in order to fulfil its historic function of holding power to account. But let me just stick up for the current journalistic practice for the moment. Wars and violent conflicts are very complex changing, confused situations. It sounds almost as if you want to have endless time to explain what's going on, to talk about the nuances, the complexities, who's involved and so on. Isn't a degree of simplification inevitable in trying to bring these complex stories to a a mass audience? A great editor of The Economist once described the basic rules of journalism as uh, simplify, then exaggerate. And there is some truth in that. This is what you have to do to make it comprehensible to anybody who isn't completely okay with the story. It's important, though, before you do the simplification and the exaggeration, you understand it yourself. I just wanted to touch on another aspect of what you might call cascade journalism, where everybody flies into the same assumption, uh, which isn't about war, which was the recent coverage of the so-called Arab Spring, which I prefer to call the Arab Spasm, uh, which is based, apart from anything else, on a fundamental misunderstanding of our own societies, let alone the societies in which we were rejoicing about these uprisings. And the idea was spread that what was good about Western society was something called democracy. And therefore, that if these benighted Arab societies obtained democracy, then they would become just like us, uh, if, if that's necessarily a good thing, which some of us would say it might not necessarily be. And the enthusiasm devoted particularly by the BBC, but not just by them, for instance, to the, to, to the overthrow of the Mubarak government in Egypt, seemed to me to be quite astonishing at the time. I thought, do these people have the faintest clue what it is that they are helping to encourage? And I don't have the slightest doubt that the coverage of the Cairo's alleged spring by Western media encouraged Western politicians into supporting something which actually any fool could see would end roughly as it did end with a military coup and with extremely violent suppression of it because the society which was being exposed to this huge external idealistic reform wasn't equipped to take it. And I, I often laugh at this at this belief that we should spread democracy to the Middle East when we haven't really got it either in Newcastle-upon-Tyne or in Chicago yet ourselves. But it, it did seem to me to be an example of how journalism can make a gathering rush into a mistaken attitude. I just want to come back to this point about how effective or what difference peace journalism would make. Jake? I've spent um, quite a bit of the past few years taking examples of television news stories as broadcast in several different countries, Australia, South Africa, the Philippines and Mexico, different countries, and re-editing them with new elements and new materials as peace journalism versions of the same stories in approximately the same length and to approximately the same style and playing the two versions to audiences and garnering their reactions. And what we've found really in a nutshell is that it is possible to get viewers' attention for a perspective on an important issue of common concern, which they wouldn't usually hear. But in television terms, the way you have to do that is to give them somebody to relate to. 
So it's a familiar staple of television news production. You tell it through the eyes of an individual. But that person's story is chosen in order to open up the kind of hidden aspects of the story. So, for example, in Mexico, a great preoccupation is the so-called war on drugs. And the war on drugs concentrates mainly on supply, that is, armed interdiction of the narco-trafficking cartels. What gets a lot less attention in the media or has got a lot less attention is demand. What what generates demand for drugs? Why is it that uh, every time you knock off one cartelista, ten spring up to take his place, like so in Dragon's Teeth? And we told that story partly through the eyes of a man whose daughter had been lost, kidnapped and killed by a drug cartel. He despaired of the efforts of the police to investigate it and did so himself, using his own resources. And now he goes around talking to politicians about the need to, as he puts it, regulate drugs. By having his story, we could get audiences' attention, we could get them listening, we could get them paying attention, something different, something that stands out. Over time, the climate of expectations shifts. Over time, the context in which political decisions are made will gradually change. And one important piece of evidence for that is how far media have to be instrumentalised in order to bring about that kind of change. You know, no government can afford to ignore media. Am I right in thinking, though, that there is quite a degree of hostility towards this idea in the media, that they think that they are doing their job objectively, they're trying to tell the truth? No, the, the, the difficult issue, I think, is encapsulated in the word which you used at the outset, which I think is a very important one, which is unwittingly. I don't believe that most professional journalists in most places set out to do anything other than an honest report of the facts. But the whole point about this is is which facts from among the infinite glittering array of facts out there. Miriam. I suppose the word that stuck out for me was the word objectively, which I take issue with anyway. I'm not certain there is uh, an objective, in inverted brackets, position on any given topic. And I think the proposition that there is such a thing as an objective perspective is problematic in and of itself, because what it does is it actually serves to perpetuate a particular perspective, which would be the the dominant one in any given society, as somehow being neutral and uh, free of value, when in fact it is a perspective in and of itself and so I think actually I'm not sure that the objective ought to be some sort of objective journalism which I think is pie in the sky it should be self-aware journalism it should be journalism which is very clear about where it's coming from the parameters of the discussion uh, that are occurring and and really uh, seeks to situate itself in full awareness of where it's coming from that would be much more laudable in terms of an objective Peter oh I think there is objective truth a did kill B C did pay the money to D. These actions can be established, and X did say such and such to Y, and this particular statement will be on the record as as having been made at some point, and these things can be established. The way in which the slant of news is achieved is not through the distortion of facts, but through selection. And it is the selection, the prominence given to various things, the leaving out of various things, particularly these days, the enormous selective outrage. I don't think that we can solve this by, first of all, by treating journalism as a profession, which it is absolutely not. It is a trade, or by actually preaching elevated ideas, particularly to journalists. Though I think the simple principle that you never, ever, ever write anything which you do not know to be true wouldn't be a bad one. I think C.P. Scott was dead right that comment is free and facts are sacred. But what has happened, particularly in the BBC in the past 20 years, is this this confusion of news and current affairs. And current affairs has actually been an opportunity for people to slip their 
their opinions into news, so that you have two rival versions of events being described. And they're both actually dubious, but the reporter slips in, not by the use of adjectives or anything as blatant as that, but the use of verbs. So one side says and the other side claims. And the slack editing of news bulletins in this way, I'm constantly observing it, the way in which a reporter is probably unconsciously putting prejudice into a news story. News should be savagely edited to prevent that kind of thing. I think it's still an important job of journalism to distinguish between facts and claims. And this is why we need media which are more than merely interpersonal, more than merely perspectival. There has to be a continuing aspiration to report the facts. There have been problems in the past with claims being passed off as facts. Iraq's weapons of mass destruction was a good example. Now I think there are facts, or at least I would probably call them stores of um, social artefact, stores of of crystallised social labour, which we can and probably should regard as facts, and there are ongoing efforts to downgrade them to claims. Journalists are sometimes induced or intimidated into regarding them and treating them as claims to be balanced against counterclaims, whereas actually they should be treated as facts, and that's a very important distinction to make. My thanks to Jake Lynch, Miriam Francois Serra and Peter Hitchens. I'm Edward Caffer-Juma, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for people who think there's more to life than the material world, whether or not they belong to a faith community. Things Unseen is brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.